as I think you probably guessed from the notes I've handed out, we're going to have a little look at Leviticus tonight. You may be relieved to find out that I've given you more material than I expect we will deal with tonight. This is not the first time I have sought to go through Leviticus. Leviticus. One of those most important books in the scriptures. Perhaps a book that we find somewhat difficult to come to terms with, to grasp and understand. There are reasons for that. Not the least of which is the fact that we have not just been delivered out of Egypt. We are not camped out in the wilderness. We do not have that tabernacle erected in the midst. We have not seen that manifestation of God's glory present in the midst of the people. Nor are we faced with the journey to the promised land. Nor are we faced with the prospect of going into the promised land to drive out those who have come under the judgment of God. We live in a very different situation. The things that are in the book seem a little foreign to us. I'm sure that is the case. And secondly, when we read through the book, we find it's a book of laws. As you move through this book, some sections are fairly clear in the way that they're laid out. At other times you find law following law following law on different subjects. There's all this references to clean and unclean. Things which are an abomination. There's lots of references to sacrifices. There's references to clothing. What it should be made of or not made of. How you're to deal with harvesting your crops. And we don't, we don't follow those rules. When we come to this book of Leviticus, I think it's important to start here with the general context, which we find in Exodus chapter 40 and at the 34th verse. The tabernacle has been erected according to the pattern laid down. And we read, at verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's mentioned there twice for emphasis. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. 
God is in the midst of the people. God, his glory is filling that tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation. And this is when we come to the first verse of Leviticus and we read, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is one of the most significant features of the book of Leviticus. We have God speaking to Moses. A large part of the book is God giving laws to Moses. This makes what is said significant in and of itself. But, but of course, no more significant than other scriptures, because all scripture, all scripture is theonostos. All scripture is inspired, is God-breathed. And is profitable. God, the Lord calling to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them. So what what is set out in this book was given directly for the children of Israel. It was given for those people who God had separated from Egypt. It was given to those people who were to fulfill the Abrahamic promises. Promises given to Abraham. And that's what this book is, is full of. The book of Leviticus comes between Exodus and Numbers. Numbers, where they set off on the march to the promised land. This book is called Leviticus because of the title given to it by the Greek, the translators of the Greek Old Testament, as we call it, known commonly as the Septuagint, before the days of Christ. A reference, of course, to the sons of Levi, to the priests, who feature so much in this book. In a Hebrew, it would have been known in English as, and he called. Because the Hebrew practice was to name the book after its opening words. And they came to consider that they weren't worthy to use the name, the covenant name of God. So they would have called it anti-cult, which is, of course, the major feature of the book. We have God in the midst. The question you might ask is, with the holy God in the midst, how can sinful people approach him? How should they live? 
day by day. You can look back and you can see the judgment that came upon the Egyptians. You can look forward to the judgment that is promised. Warned off. Is certain for the peoples of the land, the Canaanites. How are these people, the children of Israel, how are they to approach the Holy God? How are they to live with his presence in the midst? And that's what's set out in the book of Leviticus. The book opens with five sacrifices. The first three of which may be termed voluntary. Indeed, the reference in verse 3, it says, of his own voluntary will. The first three are voluntary. The, the, the next two were, as it were, compulsory because they related directly to sin against God. Trespass against God and man. A major important feature to note in verse 3 for this sacrifice of burnt, the burnt sacrifice of the herd, it has to be without blemish. That which is offered has to be without blemish. Nothing defiling it, nothing corrupting it. The burnt offering the first sacrifice was not to be eaten. It was to be burnt. It was wholly devoted unto the Lord. The others, part to be burnt and part to be eaten. The grain offering, the meal offering in chapter 2, was to be made of, of fine flour. It must not contain, verse 11, either leaven or honey. But, verse 13, salt must always be used. There is no artificial sweeteners to be added Nothing to make it more exciting to eat, so to speak. But salt, which preserves salt, which can bring out the flavour, <coughs> was to be altered. You can see, particularly with the burnt offering there, that we have from the herd... That is the cattle, verse 3. We can see verse 10 from the flock. 
of the sheep. Or verse 14, from the fowls of turtle doves or young pigeons. There were sacrifices there for every level of income and wealth. No one was too poor to offer up that sacrifice. So we see the sacrifices are essential. There are five set out in the first five chapters. And then chapters 6 and 7, look at those same sacrifices again with added laws from the perspective of the priests. These sacrifices would make atonement, would provide a covering But we should note the words, chapter 4, verse 2, if a soul shall sin through ignorance. These sacrifices were not, were not going to provide covering for the deliberate sin. For instance, think of Murder. There was a penalty laid down for that. But there was no sacrifice set out to provide that covering. Secondly, as we turn through the book, we come to chapter 8. What do we find in chapter 8? We find... The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and his garments, and the anointing oil, and the bullock of the sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. Aaron and his sons. Aaron, the high priest. His sons were to be the priests. They had to be related to Aaron. They were set apart. They were consecrated. They were clothed with the priestly garments. There had to be a mediator. There had to be a priest to offer the sacrifices. The people were to bring their sacrifices. But they were not clean enough to come before the presence of the Lord and actually offer those sacrifices to sprinkle the blood. There had to be this mediatorial priesthood. They began their ministry in chapter 9. But by chapter 10, something dreadful happens. Before we get to chapter 10, just note there, chapter 9, verse 24, And there came a fire out from before the Lord, and consumed the altar, consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. There came a fire out from before the Lord. 
the Lord provided the fire. That made it a holy fire to consume that offering. Chapter 10. Things go wrong. What happened in chapter 10? Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. It seems they didn't, they didn't get the fire for their senses from the altar where the fire was to burn continuously once the Lord had lit it. They brought their own fire. And judgment came upon them directly. Verse 2, And they went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. They had ignored the Lord's provision. They had done their own thing. When it came to worship. And that was most solemn and most serious. And they were judged immediately for it. Andrew Bonner has commented. That which is not commanded is forbidden. This is the regulative principle of worship. Worship of the God of glory is a very serious business. Not to be undertaken lightly and with some sort of frivolity or doing our own thing. God is holy. You'll note, reading down the chapter, that Aaron and his other sons were forbidden to mourn. Lay down and abide Verse 6, uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die. And it's then, verse 9, that alcohol for the priests when serving was prohibited. Nothing was to influence or to corrupt the purity of worship. Having looked at the sacrifices and the priests very briefly, The question came to me, what do these sacrifices mean to us? They are a type. Taken together, they give us a picture of the one sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 chapter 10 go through this in some detail and we've we've been there in our studies of Hebrews just to note 
There we have the words. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? These sacrifices provide us a picture of Christ and his sacrifice. And the different aspects that was involved in his sacrifice. What about the priests? The priests too, they speak to us of Christ, who is our great high priest. The big difference, he is sinless inwardly. Aaron and his sons were clean outwardly, ceremonially clean through washings and through the clothing, through not touching things that defiled, through only eating sanctified food. But Christ was inwardly, inwardly undefiled, inwardly clean. We see something of this pictured in chapter 16, which is perhaps the central point of the book, the highlight of the book. Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, once every year. A very special day when the high priest, the high priest had to make atonement for himself, for his own sins. And then, for the sins of the people. We read that there in verse 6, chapter 16. And it was only then that he, verse 15, was to kill the goat of the sin offering. <coughs> that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil. And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. The ironic high priest was a sinner. And this had to be repeated every year. Hebrews 4 verse 10 For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. However, our great high priest, Lord Jesus Christ, is a better high priest. Hebrews 4 verse 15, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hence also, He is an undefiled sacrifice. He was able on the cross to cry, Tetelestai! Finished! Completed, done. His sacrifice made full atonement once and for all. His blood that was shed paid the price. 
And we can read Hebrews 1 verse 3. When he had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. There was to be no sitting down for those priests when on duty. For their work was never completed. Sacrifice had to follow sacrifice. Day by day, week by week, year by year. But when Christ had once suffered, he sat down. His work was done. We have a great high priest, but also note that we, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. We're not called upon to offer animal sacrifices. They're not needed. For Christ has suffered once. But we are called upon to offer up sacrifices. First Peter 2 verse 5. Spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. We are to present to present our bodies as Romans 12 verse 1 as, as living holy as living sacrifices wholly acceptable unto God as that burnt offering we saw in chapter 1 was wholly consumed so our lives are to be taken up, are to be consumed with living for Christ. Devoted in everything that we do as unto Christ and his service. Hebrews 13 verse 15, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. We are related to Christ by adoption. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are consecrated by the Holy Spirit. And that is how we can come boldly under the throne of grace. What a privilege is ours. And it's all through the merit of Christ, through his shed blood. Why was the blood important? We learn about that in chapter 17. The blood. The blood, verse 11, makes atonement. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. When Christ died on that cross, it wasn't the blood in his body. It was the blood that was shed, signifying his life poured out. He paid the price with his life through the shedding of his blood to make atonement for our sins. The wages were paid. 
The ransom was paid. The wrath of God covered and taken away. And looking further on in the book, you will see much about feasts. The feasts also speak to us of Christ. See those in chapter 23. We're familiar with some of them. Don't need to spend any much time on them, but, but think of Passover. Think of Pentecost. First fruits. The Day of Atonement. They speak to us of Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ is the first fruits. Then it's left. Christ is our atonement. So we see that the book of Leviticus speaks to us of Christ. We should take time and spend time in Leviticus to learn about Christ. To understand more fully what he accomplished on our behalf. But I want to spend a moment or two just thinking about the fact that Leviticus is a book of laws. Obviously, the rules about the sacrifices in themselves are, are laws, but I'm thinking of the other laws that we find in the, the central and latter part of the book. Hopefully, it, it's clear as to why we don't follow the sacrificial ceremonies and laws. Why we don't need a sacrificial priesthood. Gathered around the tabernacle. But what about these other laws? And one of the sheets you will find on the back of it, chapter 19 of the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. I'm not going to go all through that. But I would commend it on to you to have a read sometime. But that sets out the threefold division of the law. Ceremonial, moral and ju judicial. Regarding the moral law, Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 tells us, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts. The moral law goes back to the time of creation. The moral law endures and continues. It was codified at Sinai. Think of the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. 
chapter 18, verse 24 and 25, make clear that the Canaanites were to be, were to be in its very graphic, were to be vomited out of the land. Because of their transgressions of the moral law. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 make clear too that God's view has not changed on the subject of the moral law. Even regarding what is one of those controversial subjects today, the subject of homosexuality. God's view has not changed and indeed the Lord Jesus Christ very clearly defined for us Matthew 19 verses 4 to 6 that marriage is between a man and a woman and that this is a creation ordinance there are laws in Leviticus that come under the heading of ceremonial there are laws in Leviticus that come under the heading of the, of the moral law Read through, you'll find there are references to adultery, to homosexuality, to bestiality. There are laws regarding the social situation, not uncovering, as it were, near relatives. These come under the heading of God's moral law. Our maker, our creator has defined some things as good and right and some things as wrong. But thirdly, there are judicial laws. We have to remember, the book of Leviticus was given to a nation, a theocratic nation, a people living under the rule of God. And as a nation, they needed laws <coughs> and rules about all sorts of subjects. We tend to call these judicial laws. For instance, in chapter 19, we read about them. Not that they were not to, they were not to, to pick every grape when they went through the vineyard and when they were harvesting a field of corn they were not to go to the edge or into the very corner they were to leave some for the poor to glean this time there thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger I am the Lord your God but these are are judicial laws. There is a principle behind these laws that we can learn from. A general equity. But they are not laws that are in detail binding upon us today. We have to be careful to draw this distinction when we're looking through a book like Leviticus or Deuteronomy. <clears throat> There's a general equity. In the case of the, 
the fields of the harvest of the vineyard, the general equity was of considering, of being generous towards the poor. But what about those laws about clean and unclean foods? For instance, chapter 11, verse 12, Whatsoever hath no fins, nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. So how is it that, that we are allowed today to eat shellfish? It's not compulsory. I don't eat shellfish myself, but, but we are allowed to eat shellfish. Jesus explained this in Mark chapter 7, verse 18. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? It doesn't defile him morally. If you eat something, So all foods were cleansed. This was also made clear to Peter. Remember Peter? He didn't want to take the gospel to the Gentiles. To put it bluntly. Not so, Lord. Remember that vision he was given? Those animals that were in the basket... Unclean animals in that basket. And he was told to, to kill and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. But Acts chapter 10, verse 15, we read, And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. People, fall into confusion on some of these matters because they haven't considered the whole context of Scripture. Both the original situation where the laws were given, but also later teaching that is brought to us. What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Perhaps the primary purpose of those laws was to was to emphasize the need for discernment and separation in every area of life. There were laws about not mixing materials together when you make clothing. Not growing crops together in the same field. Each area of life had laws about separation about division, which required discernment every day. They were to be totally, radically different in every way from the people who lived around about them. In many ways, those laws were principally ceremonial and have been fulfilled in Christ. In so far as these laws demonstrated a separation of Israel from the nations around about them, let us note 
that it is a wonderful gospel truth. Ephesians 2 verse 14, that he hath broken down the middle wall of partition. He has broken down the middle wall of partition. There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. It's not the outward marks on our body, the outward ritual cleanliness. But the circumcision of the heart. Colossians 2 verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ today. We have so much more than what these laws on the surface offered. God had his remnant who saw in these laws the coming Christ, the promise of one who would truly set his people free. But the mere outward, the mere outward observance of these rituals did not bring anything more than a ceremonial (coughs) cleanliness and acceptance in the nation. Samuel had to tell Saul that it was no excuse to say I couldn't do what I was commanded to do because I had to go and offer a sacrifice. Samuel told him to obey is better than sacrifice. We look to Christ who has finished the work. We look to Christ who is our great high priest. And as our eyes are fixed on him, he is our hope of glory. He is our access to the throne of grace. Leviticus draws towards a close with warnings for disobedience. Chapter 26. Promises of blessing. Warnings for disobedience. But also, with the great declaration that in spite of the nation's coming disobedience, 26 verse 45. But I will, for their sakes, remember the covenant of their ancestors. The promise made to Abraham would be fulfilled in spite of the disobedience of the people. 
and we see in years to come that the land was given its rest the people were exiled in Babylon but in time a remnant a remnant were brought again into the land and from that remnant we find one was born in Bethlehem the king of the Jews you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins God kept his covenantal promise God always keeps his word and that is our faith and our hope today that God will keep his covenantal promise made through the bloodshed on that cross when the Lord Jesus Christ died to save his people from their sins Amen Let's pray Our Father we do pray that indeed you will hide your truth in our hearts but that any chaff might be blown away upon the wind that we might know something